This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this uh, great world. Uh, I'm Todd DeVoe, and I'm the host of EM Weekly, and uh, I have my co-host, Dan Scott. Dan, come on in. Dan, there he is. Hey, good morning, happy new year, all the good stuff. Absolutely. You know, we got a great, we have a great uh, program going on today and we have a, well, we have a whole bunch of people. So I'm not going to introduce everybody individually right now. I'm going to bring everybody in um, as a group, but um, today is the one year anniversary of, of the uprising and riot protest, whatever you want to add to it um, in, in Washington, DC. Um, and what we're going to be discussing is what, what is it to be, on the response side of that, not necessarily, you know, the political side is whatever, but we want to talk about what is it to be in the EOC on the, on the ground when that thing happens in your city, because I'm telling you something, you have to be prepared for a an event in your organ, in your city at your organization. That's going to be a national story. Um, I had a couple of my career um, and it's, it's, it's definitely a different way to handle things um, because it gets just, it gets crazy. So that being said, let's bring the crew in from, from DC. Come on in, guys. Carrie, Jessica, and Chris. Good morning, everybody. Or good afternoon for you guys. Good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> so all the way from uh from Washington, DC. Uh, you know, we're just talking I talk about the idea, right? You, you know, you're coming in in the morning, especially with planned planned events, you know, what's happening. Uh, but then you never expect them to turn sideways necessarily. So is it safe to say that you're all, um, in the center of emergency management universe on January 6th, everybody saw what was going on, was on TV. And, uh, what was going through your minds when you saw what happened at the Capitol? Well, Todd and Dan, thanks. Uh, thanks for having, uh, DC Homeland Security Emergency Management Agency and uh, our leadership on the call. You know, I think leading up to January 6th, we all knew that um, this was going to be a different day. Uh, we have been looking at intelligence for several weeks that indicated January 6th was going to be a significant uh, event and we were going to have tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of people in the city. So I think, you know, with the professionals that are on the call and, and, and those that work in our agency, uh, we were ready and we were bracing ourselves. Uh, for what could be potentially a, a, a very um, historic day, an unprecedented day. Uh, I know from my personal standpoint, w when I saw what was happening at the Capitol, I think as an American, uh, it was jarring. Um, it is something that still continues to sit with me um, in terms of seeing the Capitol breached the way it was and in the, the violent way that it was. But I also think that as an emergency management professional and, and the things that we do every day um, as, uh, as experts and specialists in our field, you have to focus yourself and make sure that you're getting the resources uh, to where they need to go. So the, the focus for me was first one of shock, uh, but also then after that very quickly, a focus on the tasks that needed to be done. 
Carrie, same, same to you. What, what what was going through your mind when you saw that happening? Yeah, so I'll echo that. I think for about the first 15 seconds, we were all in shock, just kind of watching in silence. It was really unbelievable. Um, and then after the 15 seconds sunset, you know, the phone started ringing off the hook and the requests started pouring in. Uh, but my, my first thought was like, I've never seen anything like this before. I'm in an alternate universe. And then almost immediately, I thought about my husband who works in emergency management on Capitol Hill. And he was there that day. And I was able to make positive contact with him at the time. Um, but we had lost contact and I didn't get to hear from him for almost five hours. And I wow. knew he was obviously very busy. Um, but when the whole world is watching and we're watching the news, streaming the videos and you hear gunshots fired, like I naturally began, began to worry. Um, and it's interesting. Emergency management is very unique. Our job is like literally to be there for people on the worst day of their lives. And, and we're the master organizers of chaos and the conductors of the orchestra, whatever you want to say. But no matter if you're in D.C. or Tornado Alley or in the Gulf Coast state, someone on your team in the EOC or in the field likely has a personal connection to the incident. And when you're personally affected, it can be so difficult to compartmentalize the fear and like push aside the worry in the, in the moment and just be at work to get the job done. But we do it. That's what emergency managers do. Uh, we, we kind of push it all down and, and sooner or later we have to deal with that. But J6 just really confirmed for me the importance of mental health awareness in our industry, simply because my immediate reaction was directly tied to my own. Absolutely, especially with the personal connection over to the Capitol building as well. And, and, and Jerica, same, same question to you. What, what was going through your mind? Yeah, I mean, so Carrie and I, I think we're sitting right next to each other in that 15 seconds of sort of being stunned at first. We were actually, you know, the morning was relatively quiet, all considering. So we said, hey, let's do some pre-inauguration planning because that was, you know, supposed to be around the corner. Um, and then we all had that moment uh, of pause. And, um, you know, there was a lot going on that Carrie and Chris already mentioned, just like really trying to grasp the concept of what was happening um, and trying to figure out what to do with your feelings about that while moving into action. And, you know, I think for us, we, we did a couple of things like we had the 15 seconds and then we just kind of sprung into what do we do now? Um, and from managing an EOC perspective um, and just the operations of that day, I think it's important to kind of share where our heads were on like, how do we start wrapping our mind around how we respond to this? So, you know, the first thing that we did is we divided up the, the kind of enormity of what was going on to conquer everything that was happening. So Chris was working at his kind of executive leadership level um, with Capitol Police and the mayor's office and MPD. Uh, Carrie was working directly with the mayor's office for district response to this. And how do we notify, you know, folks in the nearby neighborhoods? How do we coordinate with MPD? Um, our chief of operations, Clint, was working on the regional component. Um, of course, we are very closely tied with D.C., uh, with Maryland and Virginia and all the federal um, police entities that are also in the district. So he was taking care of that. And then I was taking care of the actual EOC, that staff, um, our EMAC request, which, you know, was a huge effort on that day. And, you know, the other thing to mention, like what Carrie was saying, was just really checking on yourself. Like I walked back to the EOC after we kind of said, OK, this is what everyone's doing. Break. Um, I text my mom 
uh, and said, mom, I'm okay. I, people are going to call you and she's going to get stressed because my mom delivers mail. So she can't watch news while she's <laughs> doing things. And so she gets panic calls from people. So I text my mom. Uh, I posted on Facebook and told all my friends and family on Facebook that I was okay. Um, because you can't have your friends and family calling you when you're trying to be in response decision-making mode. And so I think that's something to underscore. It's really important for us to take that 30 seconds, two minutes to like make sure our personal, our family knows we're good, give ourselves a breather and then get to the mission. Um, and then lastly, we went and did the same thing with our team, um, making sure everybody had like a minute to breathe and then tried to be really just organized with, you know, this is what we're going to do. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. I'm going to do that uh, so that people could just move with purpose um, while they were still processing everything that, that they were watching. I have a quick follow-up. Um, you know, when, when you're sitting there going through this event, right. And now you guys at DC specifically, you guys, this is something that's, that, you know, every day, right. There's always events that are happening there. If you've ever visited the Capitol, you know that there's all sorts of protests and speeches and things going on. So the, the beginning of this event shouldn't have been, outside the norm but it's when it's when it switched right when that when that happened and, and jerica this is more for you because you're just kind of bringing that up you know do you already have plans in place to pull that trigger to get additional emergency management personnel coming into the eoc yeah so that's actually a really interesting point in the last two years we have been working really hard to scale our eoc more um, you know, there was once upon a time where if we were activated, all lights and sirens was on, everyone was there. Um, and we worked really hard to kind of do an enhanced posture before we go into a full posture. And that really served us going into COVID uh, because obviously we did response in person, which I know a lot of emergency management shops didn't do, um, but we were able to scale it. So that day uh, we had the right people that were there in person. And then we had a lot of virtual uh, support. So for example, our planning section, we had people in person, but we have part of our team um, and members of our alternate team saying, hey, we might need you to hop in virtually and be part of what we're doing. Uh, so we definitely have procedures to kind of scale and we've really refined them in the last couple of years. And that, that was really um, a winning point for how we were able to respond on January 6th. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a that was a big day, even for for those who had to just watch it, you know, on the on social media or the news or wherever they they happen to be seeing what was going on. But um, before I ask my question, I just want to, you know, emergency management in general is sometimes a thankless job. You know, you don't think you sometimes you feel underappreciated, overworked. But so I just want to say thank you and, and tell you guys how much I appreciate what you guys do every day, but also what you did that day. Okay, um, it, it's a it's one of those things that. Um, it, it, you, you necessarily not necessarily shocked what what happened, but you were in disbelief of watching what was going on. But um, you know, you see bad things happen all the time. But when you see something like that, it's like an overrunning of the capital. It's it's it's, it's uh, disheartening. But my next my question goes to uh, Dr. Rodriguez. And so, as the as the chief executive for HSEMA, what was the most challenging thing that you had to manage or overcome on January sixth? Um, thanks, Dan, for the question. Uh, you know, for me, um, a, a challenge that we had had uh, very early on uh, after after the um, the breach started 
was really making sure that we were getting uh, clear information from what was going on on the ground and, and what the Capitol uh, Police needed at that particular time. As Carrie and Jericho alluded to, we, we did have resources in our EOC. There were regional law enforcement agencies that were mobilized for, uh, for the event itself. Um, but really uh, getting to a place where the federal entities were also communicating with each other, making sure they were um, uh, passing information uh, and, and getting their resource needs um, really defined and getting uh, the, the, the required uh, resources and personnel to the Capitol to make sure that um, uh, the, the riot itself didn't last any longer than it needed to, and then, than it was at the time. One of the things that I think as, as the executive of HCMA that we've really, and, and Carrie and Jerrica have been a huge part in, in helping propel us forward over the last uh, four years, has been getting the right people in the right seats um, in the agency. And as um, I believe it was Carrie that alluded to, I, I was um, at the EOC for a certain period of time, but then I had to be with the mayor and with the police chief. But having left HCMA to go downtown, I knew and I was confident that the leadership of the agency was in good hands um, because it had Carrie, it had Jerrica, and it had our chief operations, Clint Osborne, as well as their teams uh, that were there in the building managing the incident and making sure that the consequence management piece of what we do as emergency managers was was being handled effectively. Absolutely. And I think that's the critical part about us having a team and, and uh, I know you built a, a great team over there as well. And speaking of that, the team size, you guys have the fusion center right there with you. How did that help um, you lean forward uh, when it came to planning for this event? I'll start and then I'll, you know, if Carrie Jerk have anything uh, to add. Um, that's a critical part of um, our capabilities as a Homeland Security and emergency management agency is, is that we are the host of the district's fusion center. I know that's unique across the country for emergency management agencies. I believe there's only a handful uh, across the country that, that have that capability. But what it does is it gives us a seat at the table um, with our law enforcement agencies, with the intelligence community, and there are vast, it's a vast apparatus here in the district. Um, and, and it allows us to get the information and intelligence we need to better posture ourselves. Um, you know, we're not the police department, we're not the fire department. Uh, but if if the emergency management agency doesn't have intelligence or doesn't have information, how how can it then posture for consequence management, uh, what we call to the right of boom? Um, and, and I think having the intelligence uh, fusion center uh, prior to the sixth, and as we continue to have it to this day, really allows us and elevates our work in terms of coordination um pre-disaster and post-disaster and i really think it helped us be in a great position uh to respond to the events of that day i have a quick follow-up on that um and i mean this is a little bit off you know this but i want to kind of just address it real quick because we we go off lessons learned right things happen like this and you, you as an aoc coordinator uh you know you you plan for an event you're, you set up for the event and you hope nothing happens right and then in this case we had whispers that things were going to happen. 
Um, but how do you plan for what if it happens again? So uh, moving forward in your in your in, in having response to this and having experienced it personally, how do you plan for what if it happens again? Setting up for making sure that it doesn't ever get to the where it got. Uh, I guess I'll start and then turn it to Carrie and Jerrica. Um, well, I think the way we do that is is um, we develop and we've invested very heavily in our training and exercise capabilities. Again, you mentioned the Fusion Center. Uh, the Fusion Center can look across the country um, in terms of public safety events uh, and incidents and help devise exercises and training that inform our first responders. And again, as long as that emergency management agency has that seat at the table, I think we're in a much better position uh, when we're talking about left of boom activities. I'll add um, that I think one of the things that we continue to do, and I think January 6th just underscores the importance of it, is you know we're not only making sure that our first responders uh, you know have the information that we have to plan. We're also looking at the whole of district government, um, our public outreach, letting the community know what's going on, and messaging, and all of those things. Um, and I think there's a lot that we learn uh, from having those interactions with our other partner agencies, with the public. Um, that I don't know that you can. Every incident is unique, so. You know, we'll have our EOC stood up for any other incident that we think is going to happen uh, where something like this may happen again. Um, but the challenge of that is going to be unique. And so I think the best way to approach it is really to emphasize flexibility with your teams, uh, to emphasize trust, to give people an opportunity um, to really, you know, make decisions when they have to be made. Um, to make sure that you're putting people in the seats that can be flexible when things change. Uh, we have worked really hard to make sure that our EOC teams and our leaders on our EOC teams are people who are quick to respond to change, um, can make decisions quickly based on what they have. And I think more so than any plan or drill that you have, having those people uh, that you can rely on to do that is really what gets you from incident to incident. And I'll, I'll finish out here and say, you know, having worked in, in many different areas, uh, we are very quick to do our own after action hot wash. And unlike some of the other conversations I've been through for hot wash, you know, most of us come gloves off. We're ready to talk about what went wrong and then we're ready to get back to work the next day and figure out how to make it better. Um, and, and there's a lot of candor inside the agency, which I think is really great. And everybody's just there to get the job done. And, and we are fast to have that corrective action conversation. You know, I want to jump into a little bit about mutual aid because I know it's an important part of what, what you guys uh, went through that day. Um, how, how does that work with requests? You know, because you talk about what you guys are doing, the intelligence is coming in. Um, you have people on the hook for mutual aid. You pull that trigger uh, I know we sort of touched about it a little bit, but what what does that look like for, for you guys in D.C. in general? Um, and how did it work well um, on, on Jan 6 uh, last year? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is that the relationships that we have in the region, it's, it's just integral to what we do. Uh, within the first 30 minutes of everything happening, uh, we had gotten calls from both Maryland and Virginia at the state level, 
all the counties, cities at both of those states that are part of the region just offering to help? What can we do to help? Do you need people? Do you need us to send people to the EOC? Do you need law enforcement support? What do you need? We're here. Um, and so because we have that close working relationship in the region, it does make it a little bit easier for us when we need to engage, especially quickly. Uh, so we had contact with um, Maryland, with Virginia uh, verbally, and then shout out to Chris because his New Jersey connects reached out to us as well. Um, and we were able to immediately put out an EMAC request for law enforcement support uh, to MPD and their support of Capitol Police. Um, and we were fortunate that Maryland State Police and Virginia State Police can be in the district in about 20 minutes, depending on where they're coming from. So it was just a matter of getting the digital ink signed. Um, once we had those phone conversations about how many people were available, what were we going to do to accommodate that? Um, our operations section chief was immediately on the phone with MPD, figuring out where are we staging people? Where are we swearing people in? You know, how are we managing that? Our finance and logistics teams were making sure that they all had lodging and accommodations when they came in and how they were going to deal with parking with, you know, all their squad cars and everything. Um, but just having that open line of communication was was key. The other part of it is that we had a like a National Fusion Center call in the days leading up to January 6th. Um, and so after January 6th happened and we were still, again, looking towards inauguration because that hadn't happened yet and that's a pretty big deal for us, uh, we put in another EMAC request for Intel analyst support. Uh, we had 24 hour um, analysis happening. Uh, we had about 10 different fusion centers from across the country that provided support virtually uh, to our fusion center. Um, and they did that up and through the inauguration and being able to leverage EMAC in that mutual aid support to not only have additional analysts, but analysts from other parts of the country where people may be traveling from to the district. Um, I don't think a request like that has ever been made before. Um, and it was something that was super valuable to us and our team uh, and something that I would highly recommend people consider, you know, thinking outside of just your tight team, ICS teams and stuff like that. Like, there are other resources that you can plug and those resources were so important for us in those weeks leading between inauguration and January 6th. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to follow up with you, Jerica, on this question of you are asking for all these this mutual aid during a pandemic. And we'll, we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the break. Hey, everybody. You know, um, emergency management, we're talking about today, uh, the stress of the job and, and and how things can really kind of get out of hand. And um, those in the field under under tremendous stress over these next few days or during times like this. Um, and I think our mental health is one of those things that we really need to take um, into consider. And there's an organization out there right now that is doing a study on mental health and emergency management, and they're requesting your help. They would like to hear from emergency managers and what it is, what they do. And so they're doing a survey. They want to get about a thousand people. Right now, they're about halfway through. And for those that have uh, platforms and groups and podcasts alike, uh, the team has created a social media kit that you incorporate into your campaigns. And it's called uh, Mozika Solutions website. And if you can uh, go over to this website, and it's uh, if we maybe can pop it up on the screen here, but it's uh, www.mozikasolutions.com. It says embrace um, mental health survey. Um, and 
please go to check it out, do the survey, and help them help us. And I think it's going to be a great partnership. This is a PSA for them, and I really do appreciate everybody who's working into that because I'm telling you, from personal experience, you think you got it, wait till you go and talk about it for a little bit, get that off your chest, because there's pebbles in the backpack at some point. We don't want to have too many of those things in there and break us. So please take care of your mental health. Please check out that survey and uh, please help out. And Dan, you have something to share. I do. <laughs> do I have something to share? Uh, EM student is coming back. Um, so <laughs> is that what I'm sharing? EM student. Uh, so EM student is coming back. We're going to release our first episode for 2022 this month. And then we'll be doing weekly on Wednesday. What's going on with Leaders Cafe? Leaders Cafe. Oh, man, you can't beat Leaders Cafe. So we, what we've done is we designed what we, if, you, if you've been with us before is we had Crisis Cafe, which was bringing emergency managers uh, together to talk about emergency management, be about emergency management. But what we've done is we've changed it to Leaders Cafe, where we're going to talk more about leadership in general, mentorship, how we how we become leaders, how we can surround ourselves with uh, those that we um, basically you you become who you surround yourself with. So we want to surround ourselves with, with those that talk about leadership and teach leadership and make leaders better. And Leaders Cafe is exactly what that is. So if you go sign up for that, that'd be great. It'll be in the uh, it'll be in the show notes. Go sign up for Leaders Cafe. There is a free um, there is a free tier and a pay tier. The pay tier unlocks um, multiple. Uh, there's going to be courses. There's going to be um, webinars. There's going to be uh, uh, access to us and the stuff that we're doing. So uh, go check that out and and join and become a part of our community. Outstanding, Dan. Thank you very much for that information. Let's bring the group back in, please. So before we went on that quick break, we kind of discussed the idea or, you know, the idea of what it was like to ask for mutual aid uh, during a pandemic. Uh, was the response as uh, wide as you would like it to be or was it was it restricted because of COVID? Tell me what that was like for you guys. Yeah, I'll start and then I'll pass it over to Carrie. Uh, we actually found, so this was an opportunity for our agency to grow how we did EOC operations. Um, on election day, we actually kind of test ran uh, doing a completely virtual EOC, almost completely virtual. Uh, so imagine a lot of WebEx boards and WebEx rooms and ways that people could call into different channels. Um, because we knew we were going to need to do some version of that for inauguration. Normally we have hundreds of people in our EOC for inauguration and obviously that just wasn't going to be feasible. Uh, so we had practiced doing a dry run. Um, and one of the reasons that we were able with the Fusion Center analysts, for example, we don't physically need them to be at HCMA. We didn't have to you know, worry about lodging and flights and all of that for them to come during uh, COVID. We just needed the information. Um, and as much as we can do virtual or distanced um, situations, we made sure that in our requests, we let people know how we were doing, going to try to accommodate them with that COVID factor uh, in place. Absolutely. So I'll, yeah. jump, I'll jump in here. Um, one, we knew going into this that, you know, we were maximum social distancing protocols, right? And so what we had done is actually scaled our own EOC team so that we had kind of the bare minimum present on site. Everybody else was remote, as Jerrica was alluding to, knowing that we might have to invite some partners in uh, physically if we needed to, which we did. And so we had leaned forward and asked our Department of Health to come and set up a rapid testing unit 
and, and they were there for the day before, the day of, and probably the next two weeks, because <laughs> this was an ongoing activation for a very long time. And I think that you know having those resources on site gave people the peace of mind, at least that they could walk in the door and come to work, put your mask on, you know, do all those things. Uh, but that really helped as well. Makes sense. So, uh, Dr. Rodriguez, with your background in intelligence, what specific changes would you like to see in the intelligence field um, coming out of the January 6th incident? Um, yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, I think, you know, on, on the intelligence side, um, as, I, as I look back at January 6th, 2021, and, and what we've done over the last year uh, is really enhancing those relationships with our federal partners and with our state and local partners as well. Um, our fusion center has become much more uh, active in driving a lot of those discussions, particularly here in the district, um, and, and really relies on those partnerships. So, uh, you know, and I think it's important to note that, uh, and there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about what happened on January 6th, but uh, January 6th was not an intelligence failure. Um, uh, January 6th, I think, in, in my view, was a failure to posture to the intelligence uh, and and to really, um, I think, uh, make sure that uh, from a tactical and operational side that that um, we were ready for, for what was coming, or at least the entities responsible for that were ready for what was coming. And, and whether that was uh, an unwillingness to posture or an inability to posture, I think will be decided and, and will be, you know, sort of debated in the court of public opinion and, and what's coming out of the select committee now. Um, but but the intelligence apparatus that was established after 9-11 did work. Uh, the fusion center intelligence uh, sharing processes did work. Um, everyone knew that that day was going to be a bad day. Um, and I think that, again, the the um, the, the causal in, uh, the causal effects or the, the impacts of it will be will be decided and a lot of people are looking into that right now so i think that, that's something we got to think about the other thing was um uh we uh at, at the fusion center um are are hiring uh really really strong intelligence analysts who can take a look at problems who can dissect them uh look at disparate pieces of data and put together a uh, a comprehensive threat picture we're training them to do that we spend a, we spend a lot of time a lot of investments in making sure that that our analysts are are not only doing the core functions of intelligence, but also are integrated with our emergency management function. Um, and and again, uh, our, our chief of operations, Clint Osborne, Carrie Jerrica, and and a lot of other people on our team have been integral in integrating intelligence and emergency management. And hopefully, you know, we can share uh, those lessons learned um, because I think emergency managers across the country have to make sure they have those relationships with their fusion centers. They have to make sure that they have those seats at the table, the relationship with their local police chiefs, their state superintendent of, of police, um, their F local FBI field office. Uh, they got to have those relationships um, because that will allow them to be better at their jobs. Do you mind if I join in here? Please do. All right. So because I think that this is actually really important from a consequence management perspective, right? And for so many people in our industry and emergency management, intelligence sounds so mysterious, right? But when you take a peek behind the, you know, the curtain, you see that intelligence is just simply information and that's it. It's just information. 
And the entire purpose of a fusion center is to be able to share intelligence with a wide variety of law enforcement and civilian organizations for, for decision-making purposes. And that means that emergency management is a customer of the fusion center. And I think most people in our field just don't make that connection because they're not, fusion centers don't necessarily reach out to us, right? So um, one of my primary recommendations is that all emergency management organizations develop relationships with their intelligence community around them. And don't just be a phone number. You need to get in there. You need to talk with them about the essential elements of information that you're interested in, uh, the pieces of information that they might be interested in, and then make sure that that relationship uh, ebbs and flows and keeps going on because you can't just be that phone number that they call during a bad day, right? So um, it's really important that you establish that relationship with your intelligence community. No, absolutely. I, I agree with you 100% with that. We I'm lucky here in Orange County that when I was working, we had a, the Fusion Center associated with our EOC as well, um, with the county uh, sheriff's department. And they are such a great resource to, to use, especially when we're looking at things like uh, planned protests and, and uh, spontaneous protests as, as well. Um, what went well that day? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll take that one. Um, it's actually kind of funny. So on January 7th, the day after I was debriefing with the director and our chief of operations, Clint Osborne, and I had made the statement that HCMA's response to J6 was amazing. Because from my point of view, you know, leading the EOC response with Jerica that day, what I saw was an engine. I saw our team was an engine like a V8 twin turbo, right? Everyone jumped into action, they played their role, they worked quickly, and we integrated with other components of the district with ease. Uh, Jerrica touched on it a moment ago. Uh, we fulfilled all logistical requirements in a very short amount of time. So in addition to EMAC and getting all of those resources, the appropriate lodging and food, we drafted and submitted a state of emergency, an emergency declaration. We coordinated with the mayor's office to push out curfews. We coordinated with local healthcare facilities because it was still COVID time, right? And we pushed out two wireless emergency alerts and dozens of public information messages all within about four to five hours. So it really was incredible, all while uh, having 12 people doing it, right? We typically have 50 up to 100, as Jerrica alluded to earlier. So we were lean and mean. I think another success for us that day was that we had a key executive from the city administrator's office sitting with us at the EOC. It wasn't planned. It wasn't something that we asked for in advance. But because of relationships, he, he had called me when the, you know, the insurrectionist started climbing the stairs and said, hey, can I come sit with you? And uh, he offered to assist with all of the public administration type work that goes along with the declaration and curfews. And I really credit that to allowing us the ability to work quickly. If I could just add, um, and uh, before Jerrica chimes in, um, one, of the, one of the things I want to add to what Carrie said was, <laughs> You know, in the middle of an incident like we were experiencing, uh, there's a lot of confusion and particularly in our public messaging. What's happening? What do we want the public to do? Uh, that's a critical piece of this. And our Joint Information Center, which was stood up uh, and, and led by our, our, our communications chief, but also with the mayor's office, we're in, we're in lockstep. So Carrie mentioned, are we a messaging? Uh, we were able to push out that information very quickly to tell our residents what it was we needed them to do. And, and one of that was stay at home and don't go near the Capitol. Um, we issued from the mayor 
and and I think our communications apparatus through our JIC uh, was extremely uh, effective in the coordination of messaging. I think that's also something that went really well. Jerica, same question. Yeah, I there's not a lot that I can add that they didn't they didn't both cover, but I think what went well uh, was really that we have been in a activated posture for almost a year at that point. Um, and we kept having this thing. We almost should have made a t-shirt is well, if we just get through inauguration, then everyone will take a break. Um, <laughs> that was, we probably set ourselves up for that, but we just kept on saying, if we can get to inauguration, we'll take a break. Um, but I think what went well is that even though people are burned out, are fatigued, have been operating with COVID both personally and professionally for almost a year. Uh, the relationship and the close way that we have been working with each other, emergency or day to day, um, and the trust that we build with our team members. Like I can go to the ops section chief or the finance chief or whomever, give them something, know what's going to be taken care of and not have to come back to it. And that really lets everybody operate in their lane and operate effectively. Um, and I think we, we did that, like Carrie said, as a well-oiled machine on that day. Uh, and I think that was really one of the highlights. You know, you guys, like I alluded to earlier, I forgot the number of of, of events you guys, pub, free speech events, if you will, public protests or or demonstrations. Uh, I know when I visit D.C., there's always seems to be something going on around the area. Um, you know, most jurisdictions don't deal with that kind of op-tempo. Uh, what can they do to lean forward and plan for something like this, even if they think it's just going to be a simple, I don't know, like May Day sub uh, protests that we have here in this area every once in a while. What can I do to lean forward to make sure that they're prepared for something if it goes sideways? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll take that one. So um, I think there really comes down to four things. So first, I think other emergency managers should constantly activate their EOC team, even for minor events. Just activate the heck out of it. And, and while you're doing that, learn how to streamline those activations. So figure out the bare minimum of what you need to get the job done and then just practice that. Figure out how to cross cross train people to do all the jobs, like all the jobs, and create flexibility in the system. So, as Jerick had said, we've been activated for six months at that point consistently, just for civil unrest events. That's not even the COVID activation that was ongoing at the same time. Um, and I think it was that reputation that repetition that really helped us that day. Uh, it's sort of like muscle memory, right? So you have to frequently use those muscles if you want to get the results that you want. So activate for the raindrop, activate for the snowflake, activate for the football game. You just have to do it. It's, it's not a pain. It's just practice. Um, the second thing I think you can do is just handle people with care. So make sure you're watching the room. Make sure you're watching your team. Make sure you're watching out for your colleagues and asking them if they're okay all the time for any event, during the event, after the event, long even after the event. Um, I have colleagues to this day who still ask me how it's going at home, knowing the personal situation that I was in, right? So just handle your team with care for all events, just to make sure that they're ready mentally and physically. The third thing I would suggest is what we mentioned before, call up your local intelligence community and share the essential elements of information that you're interested in, the things that you care about, ask what they care about, start sharing information. And once you get that information, make sure make sure you share it with your partners. Uh, it takes a village to respond, so just make sure that that village is ready. And then the final thing that um, I'll talk about.
final thing that I'll talk about is, is really granting authority and giving grace, which for this one, I'll give Director Rodriguez all the credit. Um, he placed full trust and faith in the emergency management team, which he said before, and he had to go be with the mayor to make those big strategic and political decisions. And he looked at us and said, you got this, this is what you do. And uh, you know, we were in constant contact all day and he would just reinforce that he was there to support us and the decisions that we were making and that we had to work quickly and just do our jobs. And for me, like as his deputy, it's really important to hear that, especially when you're helping to respond to the largest terrorist incident since 9-11, frankly. Right. He gave us the freedom and the latitude to do what's right and, and to do it quickly. So I would encourage anybody in a leadership position to get to that point. Train your team so that you can step away to do all the big things and try to get to a place of comfort knowing that they'll be able to do their job and then make sure that you offer grace if anyone makes a mistake. Grace is critical. Chris, I have a question for you that, you know, a lot. there's a lot of jurisdictions out there that have emergency management um, as a collateral duty or um, it's, it's tucked away into uh, a public safety department somewhere that doesn't have access to the mayor or to the decision maker. How critical is it for you to be able to have that direct access uh, to that level of decision making? Yeah, again, it's a great question and one that um, I think – uh, really is is a lesson for uh, states and other big city jurisdictions. It's a credit to, to Mayor Bowser and her team, uh, elevating the role of the emergency manager to a cabinet level position with direct um, access to the chief executive, whether that be a governor or mayor uh, or a county administrator or a city administrator. Um, I, you know, I, and, and it, but it's also about de developing that relationship with your principal um, you know, I have no problem calling the mayor and giving her my my view or my take on things. And and I think, as Karen mentioned, it's about having faith in the team, right? You also, as an emergency manager, you have to manage up and you have to make sure that your principal understand uh, your customer, your first customer, um, your boss, what their needs are, what their requirements are, and you have to try to fill them. But you also have to speak truth to power as well and make sure that they know that um, what, what the risks are, what the opportunities are, what the challenges are. And so I think it's absolutely critical. I'd even go farther than what your, um, than, than your question, Todd, which is that emergency management agencies uh, should be resourced, uh, perhaps not a level of, of the police departments or the first responders, but certainly more than they are now. Um, and, and, you know, we're fortunate at HCMA in the district uh, to have, um, roughly about 150 employees for a city of our size of 700,000. I know that um, you know there are a lot of associations that are advocating for more resources for emergency managers, and they need to continue doing that. We we collectively as a profession um, have to continue to advocate for for our resources because I'll tell you, um, often the the requirements that are coming from my chief executive. Um, uh, outstrip the resources that were given, and and we have to advocate for those coming out of COVID. Coming out, in many respects, we're still in it. Um, the the mass demonstrations that we saw, and I say it's a credit to the mayor that she is giving us more resources. We're building out a brand new facility that'll be completed within the next six to eight months. Um, we're, we're getting more getting more money. And so that's that's critical. And, and having that access 
is the only way to be able to do that. So if you're an emergency manager, you want to be a director or you, or you want to move up uh, into leadership positions, don't take the first position that's offered to you. Make sure that you understand the role. Uh, make sure you understand the access uh, because you're never going to if you don't have access to the executive. If I could add something just quickly to what Chris said, um, I think there's also you you have to be vocal about your need um, for them to understand emergency management as well. Uh, you know, we have ICS, we have structure, we have all of these things in place for a reason because it works. Um, and every jurisdiction, you know, might tune things to their needs a little bit, which we do. Um, but I remember vividly on about the third day that we were activated for COVID, uh, the previous deputy city administrator uh, was used to being a city administrator and he had emergency management experience from another state, but he came into the EOC and was doing his deputy city administrator thing. Um, and I had to go up to him and say, hi, you know, I'm Jerrica. We can't do it that way. <laughs> um, let me show you Web EOC, and this is how we track resource requests, and we want to be able to keep up with them. And I sold it like, you know, and, and it's true. We are going to be going through audits for years from COVID, from public assistance reimbursement, but that grant side is not something that, you know, the city administrator or the mayor is thinking about until the money starts to come back in. Um, so just being able to say, you know, I need your help to make these decisions, but I also need you to do something for me because on the back end, we're all going to be much better for it. And I know Chris probably knows the number off the top of his head, but like because we did those small steps in the beginning to make sure everybody understood we had to use WebVOC, we had to track costs. The district has done an incredible job of getting reimbursement um, from the public assistance grants and other grants. And part of that was just our staff, not, not just me, not just Carrie or Chris, but we said we need you here, but we also need you to kind of play ball by our rules while you're here. Um, and there's a little bit of fear around that, but it, it, it works out to get that out of the way because it serves everybody in the end. Absolutely. I wish, I wish more administrators would understand that and that I wish more emergency managers would be able to go up and say that to them because, you know, at the end of the day, it makes our job so much harder uh, when we're trying to get reimbursement. If not every department is playing along with the, the track and everything like that. Oh, Jack, you just made my day today. That's just, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Everybody out there listening, do what she did. <laughs> very, very, that's also it's a very important aspect of things. One of the things that we we promote very highly, but it's more than just advocating; it's educating. We have to we, we want to advocate for emergency management. We want to educate what emergency management is, why it's important, how people can help, how they can get involved themselves. So it's advocating and it's educating um, what it is and what they can do and how they can be better at, at, at uh, the next time around. But it's it's very hard to do in the middle of uh, an incident. You know, it's one of those things that we. Pre, you know, preach, you know, blue skies is when you want to be doing all the work. So gray skies, it comes so naturally to you. And I want to add on to one of your comments, you know, that uh, the, the, the repetition, you're doing it over and over and over again. Repetition is the mother's skill. And we got to do it. Even if we're not in an incident, we need to practice it. We need to practice it. We need to practice it. So when an incident takes place, it's like second nature to us. It's muscle memory. Absolutely. And Carrie, in the, in the comments, a lot of people are, are really happy about you saying activate 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 because uh i think we all sort of on that on that page too all right so here's here's a tough question for y'all right um and, and take it whatever order you want uh if you could say one thing to all the emergency managers in the world which i guess you kind of can right here on this platform 
What what would it be? Who wants to go first? All right, All right, Chris, you go first. You're the you're the boss here, so. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's uh, it would be um, speak up and and advocate for yourself and for your agency, um, because again, as emergency managers, we're often not resourced at a level uh, that meets the expectations of our bosses and our executives. So, so speak up, ask for what you need. Um, and advocate because um, it in our um, our senior leadership team is if HCMA is not strong, the 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 rest of the city won't be as strong as it can be. So we have to make sure we're also taking care of ourselves. I know our profession is built on relationships and partnerships. But we also have to make sure we're taking we're taking care of the home front as well in our own agencies. So I think for me, um, change management is really a big deal, right? And so if I could give anybody some advice, it would be don't just continue to do something because that's the way you've done it. Continue to push the limits, uh, take a training, try to learn something new, create a report in a different format, try to do things a little bit differently. This, this profession is growing exponentially. We're on a precipice of a dyna dynamic change uh, across the board. So don't just be comfortable in what you've been doing because that's how we've been doing it. It's time to do things a little bit different, a little bit smarter, and a little bit better. Carrie sure. took the words right out of my mouth, but I'll <laughs> I'll add to that um, and say it's not just about being open to change and pushing the envelopes, but it's really empowering your team to try new things. Um, I think that HCMA has a great internship program. Uh, we have a lot of young folks that come in and they see something and they have a question about it or a good idea um, and they can bring it to, you know, their manager or the team that they're working on. And it's not just our interns that can do that. Um, you know, I will say that, you know, our agency maybe is sometimes too innovative, uh, which can stress people out, but we're not afraid to try something and see if it sticks. And so fostering that environment at your agency where it's not just top down making changes, but, you know, someone in middle management or someone who has a good idea about something can can push it up and it be seriously considered and, and put into place and implement it if it's a good idea. A good idea is a good idea. It doesn't have to come from the top. And if you can reinforce that in your organizations, then your your emergency management mission will be better for it. Absolutely. Yeah, appreciate appreciate all that those comments and those suggestions and 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 bringing that to the to the audience. But I want to ask a question as we start to uh, wind down the show. What keeps you up at night? So I'll start. Um, you know, for me, it's um, it, it is the political situation in our country and how it manifests itself on our streets in the nation's capital. Um, if we think that January 6th is going to be the last time that we see large scale domestic political violence, I think we're being naive. And that's not making I'm not trying to make a political statement about who's to blame for that. But the 22 midterms are coming up very quickly. The presidential election will be in full swing uh, within the next several months. And so I think we really need to, as a city, posture ourselves uh, for for what is to come. Because it. it would be very contentious. Uh, the other thing is, I, I think for us, a, a massive cyber attack that takes down uh, a lot of our core infrastructure and systems in the city, uh, how we would respond to that 
And then the last thing, and we often get asked this question by the mayor and the city administrator uh, for a natural disaster, a, a, a weather-related disaster, is at what point does our system break? At what point are we overwhelmed uh, in, in the midst of, of a large uh, hurricane or weather-related disaster um, where the city can no longer provide basic services uh, to our residents? Um, and and, and how, are we, how are we coming out of a large-scale disaster like that? Um, those would be the three things that, that really keep me up at night. So for me, I would say losing really good team members. We're all burnt out all across the country. And, and HCMA isn't immune to that either. I sort of feel like our profession's anthem song right now is like killing me softly, right? Mm -hmm. or, or the slogan is like death by a thousand cuts. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's, and so I joke, but it's actually a really serious subject. Um, we, we do have to lose the taboo associated with burnout and mental health. And that was to your, to your ad before, right? To the break. We have to open the door to the conversation about how our line of work makes us feel and the stressors that it causes us, even when we leave the building. It's something that we don't talk about enough. And I think losing good team members because they're burnt out and exhausted is absolutely what keeps me up at night. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's easy to say like terrorism or climate change, because those are all things as emergency managers, we know that we're going to have to deal with. But for me and my chief of staff role, um, my thing that keeps me up at night is how do we create an environment that can handle whatever happens? Um, it's, you know, it's not necessarily the plan or the, the, the equipment or whatever that we have or the incident itself. Do we have the capacity as an agency um, to do that? And, you know, at the beginning of COVID, we had people that were working 18 hour days every day because they believe in the mission. They have their own tie and passion to the work that we do. So when we're not in an emergency how do we make sure those folks feel supported? They feel like they have an opportunity to grow, to contribute. Um, how do we build our system so that they're great situational awareness tools and ways to disseminate information, um, but also our ways to make what we do more reliable and efficient? Um, how do we create systems and processes that lets us make data-driven decisions? Um, you know, I'm very focused on how the agency, the health of the agency and how it's performing and what we put in place to manage whatever comes our way, because I don't think going into 2020, we thought we were going to have points of time where we were managing five concurrent events, um, but focusing on the people and the process and the structure um, that allows us to do that and how to do that effectively is, is what keeps me up. Yeah, absolutely. All those things are very important to look, take a look at that. And, and, you know, and you're right. It's, it's, how do we do our job effectively for me and, and how do we keep people safe? Those are the things that, uh, that kind of, kind of drive me. All right. Here comes the, my fun question. I love this question. Um, it's about reading. Uh, as you can tell behind me, I have uh, stacks of books back there. And as a professor, it's one of the things that I, I, I always do. And we're also building our 2022 reading list. So we'll start with Jerrica. Oh, she just took a sip. Sorry, Jerry. What what uh, what book do you recommend uh, to emergency managers? Um, so a book that one of my mentors recommended to me a while ago, and I just got to reading is Switch. So how to change things when change is hard uh, by the Heath brothers. Uh, I think it's a really good book, and it kind of speaks to what Carrie and I were talking about, like a you know a change management process. Um, and how to drive your organization through being able to tolerate change, to participate in change, 
um, and new ways to think about it. Um, and so I, I really recommend the book. It's an, it's an easy read and it's a different perspective. I think we're used to making like cut and dry, hard decisions all the time. And it kind of makes you get into your feels. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a good book for that reason. That's awesome. Switch. Okay, perfect. Carrie. My all-time favorite book that I would recommend is Radical Candor by Kim Scott. So I think that, you know, a, a pillar of your organization, of your leadership style has got to be Radical Candor, because if you can't be honest and you can't be transparent, then you have nothing and you have a house of cards. Um, I live every day exercising by radical candor, probably to the chagrin of Chris, because that's also how I manage up. Um, but that's also how we find success in what we do, because we can be honest and we can be transparent. So I recommend radical candor to anybody I have ever met. In fact, I've bought a copy for many of the folks on my team because I think it's that important. That's great. That's awesome. I'm writing these things down because uh, we'll definitely be taking, checking those out. Chris, your turn. What book? Um, well, right now I'm, I started reading uh, just this week Peril, which is the new book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa on the transition from the previous administration, uh, the Trump administration to the Biden administration. It's a fascinating read. It's a quick read um, about sort of the personalities and, and all the all the things that were going on behind the scenes, often not seen by the public. Um, but one of my favorite books, I think, on leadership is... Um, a book uh, called uh, April 1865, which is a, a chronicle of actually the the last two weeks of the Civil War, and uh, it goes it literally from almost April 1st to Lincoln's assassination, a couple weeks later, uh, to what what the Union and the uh, was grappling with, and 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 the really the heroes that sort of created the post-war uh, era, um, and, and it's a fascinating read uh, again on on the last two weeks of the civil war and some lessons in leadership. Yeah. You know, Chris, I got to throw this out there. There's a, uh, a podcast um, that they created off of that book and it has actors in it. Um, it's kind of very interesting. And I turned Dan on to that one uh, a couple years ago. You should really check it out, everybody. I highly recommend it. And it's amazing to see what this, the parallels between it's just it's crazy you need to check it out great it's, it's a very great cool story. it's a very cool dramatization of the book yeah yeah okay uh, great oh great so everybody we're here at the end i know we went over a little bit for those that you normally following us we're only normally doing a half hour show or so but this is an important topic today to discuss chris carrie jerica thank you so much for your time today it's such a pleasure to to see you all again and, and to be able to, to interact with you um, on this historic day, the history of the, the anniversary of it. Uh, for those of you that are out there in D.C., um, please know that we're all thinking about this day <laughs> it's from all sorts of different angles. And, and we do appreciate everything that everybody's done to try to keep um, our nation safe and, and the capital safe. And, and thank you for your time today. Everybody else, again, thank you all for, for spending time with us this morning. And as always, please follow us on your favorite podcast player, Facebook um, as well, LinkedIn. Uh, you can always find us there and, and YouTube. And stay safe and stay hydrated. <laughs>